0: All right, let's pray, and then we'll jump into God's word together. (coughs) Lord, our hearts are eager to hear from you. We've already sung your praises. We've been reminded of your grace and your goodness to us. We ask now that you would teach us. Illuminate the truth. Help us to see the things that you want us to see today. Pray that you'd remove the blindness of pride, that you'd remove the blindness of disinterest or distractedness, I pray that you'd give us a hunger for your word, for truth. Give us a hunger to know you and give us a willingness to respond in faith and obedience to all that you reveal. I pray, Lord, that by your spirit you would help me. Fill me with your spirit to be strong, to be clear, uh, to explain the truth of your word and apply it with skill. And I pray that all of us, God, would have uh, open ears to hear what you would say to us through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please turn this morning to James chapter 1. We've been focusing on this theme from the book of James, that genuine faith should affect all of life. There is no such thing as a compartmentalized Christianity that is healthy and strong and vibrant that only touches one part. Genuine faith affects everything, and specifically in chapter 1 of James We've seen that faith should control how we respond to trials. According to verses 2 through 4, faith should control how we respond in the sense that we count it all joy because we know God's good purposes in our trials. Faith moves us, as we see in verses 3 through 8, to ask God for wisdom in the midst of our trials because we believe that He will supply what we lack. And as we saw last week in verses 9 through 12, faith moves us to joyful perseverance. No matter what we face, no matter if it's lack or if it's loss, we believe in the promised reward, the crown of life that is to come, and so we persevere and we endure, believing by faith in a future experience of God's grace. Faith controls how we respond to trials. Last week, James told us that life is short. Remember that? Life is short, and then you die. Remember how encouraging that was to be reminded of that? So if you're poor, life is short, and this won't last forever. If you're rich, you're going to lose it all. Life is short, and then we die. But sometimes life doesn't feel very short, does it? Sometimes it feels pretty long and drawn out. For many of us, there appears to be quite a long, difficult road between now and the day that we enter into God's rest, the day that we reach that finish line and receive the crown of life, and as we seek to persevere, as we walk by faith, the reality is that we're going to experience not just the trial of adversity, opposition, difficulty, we will, but we're also going to experience the trial of temptation. There's the reality of external pressure, adversity, opposition. But we all experience this internal pressure as well. The inclination towards sin, the pull towards what violates God's will and His word. And this, too, this experience of temptation is a sort of trial. It's a test of our faith, it's an obstacle that must be overcome, and it's a difficulty that must be endured. So how does genuine faith control our response to this kind of trial, to the trial of temptation? Well, in verses 13 through 18, James shows us that genuine faith clings to the goodness of God in the face of temptation. Surely, the main point this morning. Genuine faith clings to the goodness of God in the face of temptation. Look in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted... I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. The word for tempted or temptation here in this text is the same word that's translated trial. Trial back in verse 2. It's the same Greek word. And this word can really mean either a trial or a temptation, depending on the context, because there's really a lot of overlap between those two ideas. What this shows us here is that James isn't changing the subject from trials to temptation. Rather, with this play on words, he's acknowledging the reality that life is full of different kinds of challenges. And listen, every trial we face will bring with it subsequent temptations. You've perhaps experienced this in your own life. When financial pressure comes, that's a trial, you may be tempted to be anxious or to be dishonest or to refuse to give to the Lord. If you're experiencing an unwanted period of singleness in your life, that's a trial and you may wish that you were married, you may face the temptation to be frustrated, or to be impatient, to be discontent, or even to compromise sexually. On the other hand, maybe you are married, but you still face the exact same temptations to be frustrated, to be impatient, to be discontent, or to compromise sexually. Maybe you're experiencing a physical trial, a challenge to your health. You may experience the temptation in that trial to become bitter, or to be self-focused, or to lose faith in God. Every trial brings with it the opportunity for temptation, and every one of these temptations is its own sort of trial. Now, this is a difficulty many of us would love to escape, wouldn't we? Raise your hand if you would sign up to say, I will never be tempted to sin again. I'd be all about that. I mean, you wouldn't have to ask me twice. It's an unwanted burden, isn't it, to have to deal with temptation, It poses a test of our faith and our endurance. And this temptation really has been a part of the human experience ever since the Garden of Eden. All of us feel the pull of our sin nature. It's hardwired into our flesh. We're programmed for it. We're susceptible to it. Our flesh is naturally bent towards sin. And this means that all of us in this room, without exception, from the youngest among us to the oldest, all of us, will face temptation, no exceptions. Now, our temptations may be different in some way, but for all of us, the reality is the same. This is part of our experience. We will be tempted. So what wisdom does the book of James have for those who face this seductive pull of temptation towards sin? I want to share with you this morning four principles from this passage that instruct us on how to respond to temptation in faith. So I hope that this will be practical to you, that it'll affect how you think, but also how you live and what you do. The first principle James gives us is this. First of all, when faced with temptation, we need to believe that God does not initiate temptation. We must believe, this is an act of faith in our thinking, believe that God does not initiate temptation. That's the point of verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So verse 2, to sort of go back up to the beginning of this chapter, reminds us that trials are part of our experience, but God has a good purpose in our trials. That's why we can have joy. God has a good purpose in our trials. Specifically, God uses trials to produce steadfastness in us. to to equip us and enable us to endure, to strengthen our faith. God is sovereign and he ordains that we experience such difficulties so that we will become strong. And this brings up a natural question, does it not? Well, if God is sovereign over my trials and uses them to make me strong in my faith, does that mean that God is sending temptation upon me? Well, James answers that with an emphatic no. God is not tempting you to sin. James gives two reasons why it's impossible to assign responsibility for temptation to God. First, he says God cannot be tempted himself. He cannot be tempted with any sort of evil. If we think about this, it makes sense because the reason for temptation, the reason that temptation appeals to us is because there is something inside of us that that temptation sort of latches on to. It appeals to something within us. But when you think about God and his nature, there is not a single shred of sin in God. So temptation has no pull on him. He cannot be tempted. He has no impure desires. God has no unholy inclinations. God has no unrighteous motives. He's not like us. He is the God who is holy, holy, holy. He is perfect in love, perfect in justice, perfect in purity. He is all-powerful and cannot fail, unlike Adam did. He is all-knowing and perfectly wise. He cannot be deceived like Eve was in the garden. So trying to tempt God with sin is like trying to get a finger hold on a glass wall. If you imagine like a rock climber going up to a glass surface, there's nothing to grab onto. That's why God cannot himself be tempted. There is no evil in him. He's immune to it. First John 1:5 says, "This is the message we have heard from Him, and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So God cannot be tempted with sin. There's nothing in him that that, that, that sin can appeal to. And secondly, Since his nature is antithetical to sin, he cannot be the source of temptation. That's what James tells us in verse 13. He himself tempts no one. This is because God always acts according to his will. That's a very important thing for us to understand, that God's will is perfect and sovereign, and he always does fully according to all that he desires. God never tries and fails. God never has good intentions that he fails to follow up on. God always accomplishes his will. And it is his will that we would be holy as he is holy. It would be contrary to God's will for him to tempt us towards sin. It would be a violation of both his nature and his will. So what God does do is test us. We know that from Scripture. God tested Abraham's faith in Genesis chapter 22 by instructing him to sacrifice his son Isaac. That was a test. But God never tempts towards sin. God may push you to rely on him, that's a test, but he never pulls you towards sin. Rather, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 tells us that God protects us from being tempted more than we are able to endure and provides a way of escape, 1 Corinthians 10 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. it. When you face temptation, it's not because God is tempting you. God is at work in your temptation, but he's at work keeping that temptation from becoming too much and also supplying a way of escape. That's what God's doing in the moment of temptation. So we cannot blame God for our temptations. That's really important. When you face trials and the temptations that come with them, we must never, ever assign blame to God for our temptation. While God is fully and totally sovereign, James makes it emphatically clear he is never responsible for our sin. And he is not the immediate cause or source of our temptation. So, as we seek to respond to temptation in faith, we need to believe this truth. It starts there. That's the first principle. But a second principle is this in verses 14 through 15 we need to suspect our own desires as the source of temptation. Suspect our own desires. So, we believe that God is not the source, that's verse 13, and instead we suspect our own desires as the source of temptation. Verse 14 and 15. But, so here's a contrast, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You might ask the question, okay, if temptation doesn't come from God, where does it come from? And James tells us, comes from our own hearts, and he speaks here about our desires, the desires that come out of our hearts. Now, desire is not always a bad thing. There are good desires for good things, and biblically, we are instructed to cultivate such desires. For example, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that there is blessing for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's a good desire for a good thing, and it leads to Blessing. David describes his longing for God in the Psalms as a deer thirsting after water in the desert. That's a good desire, a desire for God himself. That's a desire to be cultivated in our own hearts. Paul says the man who desires to be an elder, a pastor, desires a good thing. So desires are not wrong. Desires are not bad. But what happens when we hunger and thirst for what is not righteous? Such a hunger, such a desire... Is in and of itself unrighteous. The ESV uses the word here. That's the, the translation I'm preaching out of. Uses the word desire to translate a Greek word, epithumia. We don't often um, get into the Greek uh, language in our sermons here, but it's important to understand this. Epithumia has the idea of a desire, but it's a strong, passionate desire, an inordinate desire, desire that is overflowing its proper bounds, and even a craving for that which is forbidden. It's that kind of desire. It's not a good desire or a holy desire in this context. The same word appears in Romans thirteen fourteen. Paul says there, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Same word. Galatians 5.16, Paul says to that church, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Same word, epithumia. Ephesians 4.22 instructs us, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Epithumia, same word. So this strong desire in this context, refers to desires not just for sinful things, but desires that are themselves sinful, desires that are corrupt. And that's why throughout the New Testament, we see that epithumia, these kinds of desires, are to be put off. They are to be starved out. They're not to be gratified. Some of you may have the New American Standard Bible in your lap, and it translates this word lust, lust, which is a good translation. Each person is tempted when he is is lured and enticed by his own lust. The New International Version renders it as evil desire. NIV gets it right. When we have an unholy desire for that which is sinful, the desire itself is sinful. And friends, this is simply reflective of our fallen condition. The temptation that comes from this epithumia, this corrupt desire, is different, perhaps, than the kind of temptation that comes from the outside. Some of you, when you're thinking, okay, well, if desire, or if temptation, rather, doesn't come from God, then maybe it comes from the devil, and that can be true in certain cases. We know from Genesis chapter 3 that the devil came and tempted Adam and Eve. We see in the Gospels that Satan came and tempted Jesus, but that's a different kind of temptation than what James is talking about here. That's a temptation that comes from without, a temptation that comes from outside us. And that kind of temptation is not sinful. We know this because Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus was tempted and yet was without sin. But let me ask you, what kind of temptation did Jesus experience? Was it the epithumia of corrupt desires? Was it a fallen bent towards sin? And an, un- and an ungodly lust, is that what the kind of temptation Jesus experienced? No, absolutely not. See, Jesus didn't have our sinful nature, He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and did not inherit Adam's sin nature. So, Jesus never experienced this epithumia, this, this kind of fallen desire for sinful things. But we do experience it, we do. And it is often our tendency to think that the problem's out there. And what James wants us to do is be on guard against the enemy that's living inside of us. Like our parents in the garden, we are often quick to shift the blame, to point the fingers and say, the reason I sinned is because of the world or the devil or this person. And we're often slow to examine our own hearts. But James says, check your heart. Because there is a subtle but sinister progression here that starts with our own sinful desires that leads to sinful deeds, that leads to the consequences of sin, which is death. It's death. James describes this process with multiple metaphors. In verse 14, he says, we're being hunted. You are being hunted. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Any of you guys like to fish? The best bait is live bait, I think. Um, but there's a lot of really good artificial baits as well. I had the chance to go fish uh, this past August for salmon. And salmon like things that are flashy, and they like anything that has a splash of this like pinkish-orange color. And so you can throw a beat-up bent old spoon with a little like orange bead on the front, And they will hit that thing hard because it lures them, it entices them, it appeals to something in their instincts where they can't not bite. If you put that right in front of them, it's hard for them to say no. A little reflection of light, a little movement that mimics something good that the fish likes to eat, but there's a hook, sometimes more than one. Those treble hooks are hard to deal with. James says that when we are being tempted, we are being lured, there's something that seems appealing, and it entices us because it appeals to something in us, our, our fleshly instincts, as it were. But there is a hook buried inside. And James says we're not just being lured by the world or the devil. Other passages do talk about that kind of enticement. But James says we are lured and enticed by our own desires, the inclination of our own heart the enemy's not just out there, it's in here. And James says it's deadly. It's deadly. He uses this metaphor of conception and birth in verse 15. He says, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. You could say sinful desires leads to sinful deeds. And sin when it is fully grown brings death. You see, what starts small and seemingly harmless, it grows. It gets bigger. It gets stronger. James says, when it's full grown, it brings forth death. And James says that this horrific process is not just some grenade launched at us from the enemy. This is something that springs up within our own hearts. It hatches on the inside. Sinful desire that conceives and gives birth to sinful deeds that undealt with, And allowed to continue will grow and will destroy your life. It's deadly. We need to believe that God is not the source of temptation and we need to instead suspect our own desires. To take a good look in the mirror at who scripture says we are. To understand how scripture says that we're wired. And to be very, very slow to trust our own hearts. You know, the wisdom of the world says to believe in yourself and trust your own heart, and that's the worst advice anybody could ever give you. Biblically, that is spiritual suicide. To trust your own heart, to follow your own desires, that is the path that leads to destruction. We need to believe that temptation doesn't come from God. We need to suspect our own hearts because the Bible says we're we're tempted in part by our own desires, our own fallen desires. Um, lusts. There's a third principle that James gives us. When you're experiencing temptation, refuse to believe the lies offered by temptation. Verse 16, James is straightforward and simple and to the point. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Do not be deceived. You're being lured. You're being enticed, but do not be deceived. And this warning is firm. It's a command, it is direct, and it is something that you and I are called to obey. Do not be deceived. Do not believe the lies. But James speaks with tender concern as well. He addresses them and us by extension as beloved brothers. The reason he's warning us, the reason he's grabbing us and shaking us by the shoulders and saying, do not be deceived is because he doesn't want us to experience the destructive and deadly consequences of sin. He wants us to escape. He wants us to turn our nose from that flashy and bright lure. He wants us to deny ourselves and to put the flesh to death and to escape the destructive consequences of sin. And it's interesting here. He's talking to brothers. He's talking to believers. So even if you're a believer and you say, J.D., I'm a Christian. I, I used to be this person, but here's who I am now in Christ. I don't think I'm really as bad as you're saying I am. But James is talking to believers here. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. You still have these desires. The flesh has been crucified with Christ, but it still weighs a lot, and we drag it around with us every day. And your biggest enemy is with you everywhere you go because you're with you everywhere you go. So we can't escape it. We can't escape it. Even if you're a believer, you do have sinful desires. Don't be so foolish or so arrogant as to say that you don't. Don't get blindsided by your own heart and discover too late that there is sin that's being born in your life that has the potential to grow into a deadly force. You see, if you're going to avoid disaster, if you're going to avoid that, that train wreck, that death that comes from full-grown sin, then it requires that you refuse to believe the lies, that you don't believe uh, what sin is trying to sell you, that you don't trust those desires of your own heart. There's a seductive and deceitful nature to temptation because sin promises what it cannot deliver. Always. Always. And sin preys on foolish and unsuspecting victims who have become enamored with the offer. Sin entices, it lures, and it kills. Proverbs 9.13 says this, The woman folly is loud. This is the uh, embodiment of of foolishness, sort of a personification of, of the path of sin. It says, She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way, Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. There's the promise. That's a lie. Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know, speaking of the simple man who's entertaining this offer, he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. James here is preaching to us this same exact wisdom. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived by the empty promises and the lies of sin and temptation. And friends, this is really a matter of faith, isn't it? It's a matter of faith. What are you going to believe in the moment of temptation? Will you believe in what sin is offering you or will you believe in what God tells you? Because all sin is ultimately unbelief in God. All sin without exception, is ultimately trusting a lie. You look at pornography thinking it will help you to escape, that it will bring pleasure, that it will satisfy, but in reality it is empty and it is destructive. James says to you, do not be deceived. Perhaps some of you are the type of person who is tempted to blow up and and spew verbally all over the people you love, thinking that it will make you feel better, And perhaps they'll get the point and it'll fix the situation. But such expressions of anger do not make it better. And it doesn't help you feel better in the long term. It doesn't communicate effectively. And it actually makes the situation worse. James says, do not be deceived. You might be the one who gets all excited about sharing that juicy tidbit of gossip with a friend. You love the rush that comes when when you share secrets or significant information with someone. And you think that perhaps that sharing this will help to cement your place in the social fabric. But instead, it only brings shame and harm. James says, do not be deceived. In that moment of temptation, do not be deceived. Perhaps some of you kids, if I could talk to you in the room. Some of you kids lie to your parents sometimes. Maybe you maybe you don't deliberately say things that are black and white false, maybe you just withhold important information knowing that they'll be deceived. And you think that that's going to get you out of hot water. You think that maybe that will help you to avoid the consequences. But it only digs the hole deeper, doesn't it? James says to you, do not be deceived. These sins, when they are full grown, bring death. The fact is, temptation is always an empty promise and a lie. And the first sin is the prime example. We can always go back to the garden and we can can look at this play-by-play scenario where the serpent is talking to the woman and he tells her things that are partially true but have a deadly hook buried inside. And Eve was deceived. She believed the serpent and trusted him instead of believing God and trusting his word. Genesis 3.6 says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. They believed a lie. Satan said to them, Did God really say that you will surely die? You will not surely die. Instead, you'll be made wise like God, knowing good and evil. And they believed his lie and did not believe the word of God. When confronted with temptation, we must refuse to believe the lies. Instead, we must respond in faith, in faith, which leads to our last principle. Number four, in verses 17 through 18, we find that we need to remember the superior goodness of God. Remember the superior goodness of God. When you face temptation, believe that it's not from God, suspect your own heart, refuse to believe the lies, and instead, remember the superior goodness of God. While our desires may lure and entice us with a promise of something good, Hinting that God is holding us back and holding out on us, James says the opposite, that every truly good thing comes from God. Look at verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits. Of his creatures. This is an earth shattering statement that every good thing comes from God. Because you can flip that around and say that nothing good comes from sin and temptation. Sin and temptation can bring you nothing good. If you want something good, then go to God. Go to God. God is actually the source of everything that is truly satisfying. Everything that is eternally precious. Everything that is worthy of our desires. Every good and perfect gift. Not just the things we see as spiritual. Also the things that we would think of as even being earthly. Everything that is truly good comes from God himself. All that is noble and pure and beautiful and satisfying is a gift. It's a gift from the creator to his creatures, James points out that this is how it was at the beginning, because he refers to God, notice this, as the Father of lights in verse 17. You remember back in Genesis? We've talked about Genesis 3. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. God made everything in Genesis chapter 1, including the heavenly stars and planets. And he declared them to be what? Do you remember? Good. Good. God made everything and declared it to be good, even very good. The one who made the stars and the sun and the moon, the father of lights, is good. And he's been doing good things since day one. And he is still the same good creator today that he was then. If God is the author of all that was good in creation, we can trust he is the provider and the giver of all that is good today. There is no darkness in him. There's no shadow. There's no deception. James says he doesn't change. There's no variation or shadow due to change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The good creator is the good giver. And the proof of God's goodness, James says, is that he's not done creating. Look in verse 18. Of his own will, meaning because he wanted to, because he's good, what did he do? He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God made everything and declared it good. And James reminds us that God's not done making new things and declaring them good. He now continues his creative work as he redeems and restores his fallen creatures. Sinners like you and me. And he does this through the gospel. That's what the word of truth is. The word of truth is the gospel, the good news that the Son of God became a man and lived a perfect life and died a bloody death on the cross as a substitute for you and me. And he rose again so that all who repent and believe would become new creatures in Christ. God takes dead sinners and makes them into a new creation, bringing us to new life, And he has brought us forth and done this according to his will and by the power of his word. Every good and perfect gift is from above, including your salvation. He makes us new. God has accomplished this miracle in our hearts through the work of Christ. Consider that among all the good gifts that God gives, that he loved the world so much that he gave us his son. When sin and temptation lie to you and say that here's something good that you need, but God says you can't have it, and God has not given you what is good and everything that you need, then you need to bring Jesus into that conversation. Say, God gave me himself. He gave his only son. And Jesus loved me and gave himself for me on the cross. There is no greater thing that God could have given. The most infinite, valuable, precious, and extraordinary gift has been given, and his name is Jesus. So when you face temptation, reject the lie that sin offers you something good and instead believe that God is the source of all that is good. Remember the superior goodness of our God that he gives us eternal life, he gives us his son according to his sovereign will because he wants to, because he is loving and good and gracious. And he does this according to verse 18 for a reason. Look at verse 18. He brings us forth by the word of truth, that salvation through the gospel. Why? So that we should be a kind of firstfruits Of his creatures. This God who is the Father of lights, who created the heavens and the earth, who is good, his work is not done. He's saving us, making us new, so that we would be a living preview of what God is ultimately accomplishing in his world. God's work is not done, and his work in us is only the beginning. We're a foretaste of a universal renewal. He is redeeming his fallen creation, and one day we are going to experience the wiping away of everything that is dirtied and darkened by sin. It will all be gone, and not just our hearts will be made new, but our bodies will be made new, glorified, and the heavens and the earth themselves will be made new. And we will experience the fullness of God's goodness in a restored creation, a new heaven and a new earth. That's what God is doing. And James says we need to remember this. We need to believe this, especially in the moment of temptation. God is good. His works are good. His purposes are good. And he never changes. So rather than be deceived by the empty lies and the empty promises of sin, James urges us to cling to the absolute goodness of God. I love Psalm 84, starting in verse 10. It says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. That's clinging to the superior goodness of God. He says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Does that describe you? Do you desire the goodness that comes from God? Are you trusting in him that what he offers is better than anything that sin can offer? Are you seeking to draw near to him and say, I would rather be the bellhop in your house than have anything this world could offer? Do you believe that the Lord bestows favor and honor and that no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly, those who walk by faith? My friend, what God has to offer you is far better than any of the brief and fleeting pleasures that sin can bring. Sin is darkness. God is light. Sin brings forth death, but God creates life. Sin lies to us and then leaves us empty, but God is the giver of every truly good thing. He renews, he satisfies, he gives, and he never changes. So faith clings to the goodness of God in the face of temptation and believes that God's goodness is better than anything sin has to offer. So how do we apply some of these things? What should we do as we go from here today? First, I want to encourage you this morning to evaluate your desires. This may take a little bit of time, but I want you to do it. Evaluate your desires. You might say, how do I do that? How do I evaluate my desires? How do I distinguish good desires from bad desires? Well, here's a couple questions you can ask. First, ask yourself this. Does this desire lead me to sin? Does it? Do I want something so badly, even a good thing, that I'm willing to sin in order to get it? If so, that is epithumia. That is an inordinate desire, and a sinful desire. Or you can ask this, do I sin when I don't get it? That shows that this desire is sinful. Sinful. Even if the thing you desire is not bad, such desires, if they cause you to sin, need to be repented of, confessed as sin, laid down at the foot of the cross, and turned away from. Evaluate your desires by asking, does this desire lead me to sin? Secondly, ask yourself this, does this desire have as its object something that is sinful? Because that's another dead giveaway that this is a sinful desire. There's no such thing as a holy desire for an unholy thing. That, that's a contradiction. Does this desire have as its object something sinful? This would include a desire for glory for self. Glory is not for you. Glory is for God. So when we desire glory, that is an ungodly craving. It is a sinful desire. This would include such desires, as, or desires that are covetous, wanting what someone else has. Desires that are envious, wanting what someone else has and resenting them for having it, wishing they didn't. Or desires that are malicious, wanting something bad to happen to someone, finding pleasure in their pain. Such desires have as their object something that is sinful. Therefore, those desires are sinful. Desires for things that are sinful would include any sort of sexual perversion, now, this is a complicated subject that some people don't like to talk about, but in, when we talk about things like homosexuality or the confusion that some people experience in terms of gender, desiring to be something that God has not made them to be, when you desire something that is, in, is wrong in and of itself, that desire itself is sinful, meaning it must be confessed and it must be turned from and it must be put to death. It cannot be coddled or excused. Holy desires don't lure us to sin. Holy desires don't conceive and give birth to death-dealing monsters in our life. So any desire that leads to sin must be repented of and put to death. Galatians 5.24 says, Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Part of being a Christian means the denial of self. It means I take my desires and I allow God to nail them to the cross. And to leave them there. And I think this is actually very encouraging for us. And here's why. Some of you have had long-term struggles with sin. And it seems like you can't win. But all you've been doing is going up to that apple tree and clipping off the fruit clipping off the deeds, the sinful deeds, and you've not yet dealt with that sin at the level of desire. Here's the good news for you today. God gives grace to deal with sinful desires, and as you sort of move the goalposts back, as you sort of walk upstream and deal with it at the source, there's hope for you to have increasing victory that you've never experienced before, and I want you to experience that, and so does James. That's why he's writing to us about these desires so that we would be aware of them and our guard against them, to not be deceived by them, and so that we can even take the next step and put a bullet in it, put it to death, rather than sort of tolerating those desires. If you've only dealt with your sin at the fruit level and never dealt with it at the root level, at the level of desires, then there is good news and hope for you today. that That you can move the battle lines further back into enemy territory and see increasing victory. I think this is the reason why many people never have victory over specific sins. They've never gotten down to battling those sins at the level of desire. Never confessed it as sin. Never asked for God's grace to grow in the area of desire. They've never sought to repent and turn away from those desires. So if that describes you today, let me encourage you to come to a God who gives. Remember, he's the giver of all good things. And he's a God who gives grace to those who deal with these kinds of unholy desires. God gives grace. He gives the grace that forgives sinful desires. Maybe you need to confess right now desires that are sinful. Be encouraged. God gives grace. He gives grace forgiveness for those kinds of desires and he also gives the grace that transforms sinful desires you're not just doomed to be a slave of your lusts there's freedom in christ he gives the grace to transform us to change our hearts and redirect our desires to what is good It's not that you shouldn't have any desires. It's that our desires need to be oriented towards Christ and what he says is good. And this is what God delights to do. He's in the business of changing hearts. He's in the business of sanctifying sinners like you and me and renewing our minds and renewing our hearts so that we worship and desire him and him alone. So in terms of application, Some of you need to examine your desires, and what you discover may require repentance. Be encouraged, there is grace for you. Secondly, I want to encourage you not just to examine your desires, but also to cultivate faith. Cultivate faith. You might feel like I I spent too much time saying God is good, but we need to believe it, and sometimes we don't. So we need to emphasize this and cultivate faith in God, in His goodness, and in His promises. As you face the trial of temptation in life, as you go from here and face temptation today or tonight or tomorrow or this week, you're going to hear two different competing messages in that moment of temptation. A message from your heart and your desires and a message from God. You're going to hear perhaps a message from the world and a message from the word. You'll hear a message from the enemy and a message from your heavenly father. The question is, who are you going to believe? In that moment of temptation, who are you going to believe? Who will you trust and who will you be skeptical of? Adam and Eve were skeptical of God and his word. Did he really say? I don't think that's actually going to happen. Will you be skeptical of God and his word or will you be skeptical of your own heart? Skeptical of your own desires? Who will you trust? Will you trust your your desires and suspect God of not really being good? Or will you trust God and suspect your desires of being distorted? We need to cultivate faith because in that moment, when the pull to sin seems not just like an offering but like a command, and your desires are screaming at you to give in, it's at that moment that it is crucial that you cling to the goodness of God by faith, that you believe what He says. Remember that the choice is not, in the moment of temptation, the choice that you face is not saying yes or no to temptation. The choice is saying yes to temptation or yes to God. That's that's the decision that you're facing. And so we need to cultivate faith and cling by faith to the goodness of God, believing that he offers us something better, more satisfying, and longer lasting. While sin leads to death, God invites us to an abundant life. In Christ, faith clings to the goodness of God in the face of temptation. It's a trial, isn't it? We wish we didn't have to face temptation, but we do. But Scripture gives us the resources to deal with it. We have a good God who gave us a good gospel that sets us free. We have hope of eternal life. And we've been given the truth we need, the warnings we need, and the exhortations we need so that we have the resources to not be deceived but instead to look to the goodness of God. May we endure the trials and temptations in life by faith in the God who is good, the God whose purposes are good, the God whose promises are good, and who has given us every good gift in this life and every spiritual blessing in Christ. May we live for him and trust him as we face temptation. Father, we thank you for your word for how clear it is. We thank you for the warning, even though it's painful, to be reminded that we have a deep issue, that we have a sinful flesh that has these sinful desires. I pray, God, that you would help us not to be deceived, strengthen our faith, to trust in your goodness, to reject the lies, and to look to Christ. I pray that if there's any who are discouraged today in their battles with sin, that they would be encouraged and equipped, and that they would look to Jesus for grace as they keep fighting against sin and temptation. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to persevere and endure, believing that when we have stood the test, we will receive the crown of life that you promised to all who love you. Amen.